But this uh, Advent season, we're walking through Luke chapter 1 and 2, and we're looking at the original Christmas songs, because Luke gives us four songs from uh, Zechariah, from Mary, from the shepherds and the angels, and then from Simeon, that get us at the very heart of what Christmas is and all about. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, or to be at Luke chapter 2, and uh, this morning we're going to look at verse 21 through 40, and listen and hear Simeon's song of peace. So as you turn there, I want you to think it's the year is 1930, and America has been plunged into one of the darkest financial, uh, not only recessions, but depressions that it would experience in its, uh, in its existence. And uh, the order of the day was economy, thrift, only the thrifty would survive. You had to use everything. Nothing would go to waste. And it was a challenge for anyone who was trying to run a business, run a family, um, survive. And Ruth Graves Wakefield and her husband Kenneth were running the Toll House Inn in upstate Massachusetts. And they were uh, doing everything they could to survive. And Ruth was famous for her baked goods. And so she was trying to find ways to economize, but still not ever sacrifice the quality of her famous chocolate butter drop dew cookies that people would come from miles around to see. And then one evening, she was trying to prepare some for her guest, and she was all out of baking chocolate. And then a young man named Andrew Nestle had generously given her some of this semi-sweet block chocolate for her to try in some of her recipes. So what she thought is she would just, just cut off chips from the block chocolate, mix it into the batter, and then it would permeate, and she'd be able to create her chocolate butter drop dew cookies. And then she threw them in the oven, went about her business, came back. And to her surprise, the chocolate didn't permeate, but it had solidified. And it developed this moist gooey, glorious <laughs> consistency that everyone instantly loved. And there in that moment, out of, a, out of a, a, an accident, one of life's greatest pleasures <laughs> was born, the chocolate chip cookie. And if you ever start to just kind of get discouraged about kind of the direction America's going, you can, you can think like, you know, the Romans had their Colosseum, the Chinese, the Great Wall, the, the French might have the Eiffel Tower, but we gave the world chocolate chip cookies. And, and no one can beat that. And it came about an accident, this seemingly like uh, a couple things coming together in the most surprising way created something so good. And I have a theory I won't bore you with now, but one of my theories is that pound for pound, ingredient for ingredient, chocolate chip cookies are the greatest dessert known to man. But that's something else. Now, the famous, they became famous because uh, uh, they, they started to gain traction, started to become famous. She actually put them in the, uh, submitted them for the Betty Crocker Cooking School uh, radio show. And there's no Betty Crocker, by the way. She never existed. She's made up. Uh, just random FYI. Uh, Andrew Nestle thought that they might have a beautiful partnership that they could come together. And so he agreed to give, uh, give uh, Ruth a lifetime supply of chocolate if she would share her recipe with him so he could publish it. And it turned out to work well for both. The cookies really took off in World War II when uh, they would be sent to the soldiers in their care packages from home. And uh, the envy 
that was generated from the soldiers who didn't receive them started st st uh, stimulating demands for people back home to get with it and give us whatever those toll house cookies are. So sometimes things come together just in the most surprising fashion. And sometimes unlikely things come together in the most surprising fashion. We actually had a little experience like this a couple weeks ago because by our two-year-old son, his favorite thing in the world is dolphins. And uh, so he loves SeaWorld. His favorite thing is go to the dolphin show, Shamu show, penguin show. And uh, if you ever see him just walking around doing things like this, he's not crazy. He's just pretending to be a dolphin. He wants to be a dolphin trainer and he loves dolphins. And he was playing in our floor and I was watching something on ESPN and he heard the word dolphins. And he snapped out looking at dolphins, dolphins, dolphins. And he's looking at the TV, but it's football. And he's trying to compute. It's dolphins, but football. Dolphins, football. And he goes, dolphins, football? And then this, these, these two worlds that he didn't know, two worlds he loves, he didn't know they could come together in the same thing. And they flashed this logo up of the Miami Dolphins. He said, dolphins play football. <laughs> I said, do you want me to get you a dolphin shirt for Christmas? He goes, that is my favorite. So he's, uh, I'm glad he doesn't love gators. We'd have to have an intervention if he wanted to be a Florida fan. <laughs> That's beside the point. Um, the point is, sometimes things come together in the most unusual fashion and something, uh, despite what you would think, if beautiful is created. And we actually see that dynamic worked out here in Luke chapter Two. One of the things you're going to see together is kind of these two pairs of people that come together that's unlikely. You have a, a, a young, two young parents. And so kind of the phrases I want you to think as we move through this passage, there's two young parents, there's two elderly prophets, and then there's two strange pictures. And then there's lessons from each one of those things that's going to unpack the reality and meaning of Christmas. These two young parents get mixed with these two elderly prophets and two strange pictures that point to us the reality of what Christmas is all about. And you all know that Christmas is actually a mixture. The holidays are a mixture of two seemingly contradictory things. And you can see this in the passage. The passage will talk about the joy and the beauty and the light and the glory when it comes. But it also come in the midst of suffering and struggle and sorrow. And one of the things that you all know because you experience is why at this time is there both celebration and sadness mixed together? How do we make sense of this? You know, several years ago, even Psychology Today, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, said we ought to institute a new seasonal affective disorder. But it's the holiday season that causes the affective disorder because actually depression and things, it increases during the holiday season. In the article, there was this line that was really interesting. They think the problem with the holidays is that people have these heightened expectations of what they should experience in life and said they think they should be surfing a tidal wave of comfort and joy. Even taking the line from the Christmas hymn, they think they should be surfing a tidal wave of comfort and joy, but they're not. And it creates this deep sense of discouragement and depression. And the reality is Christmas is all of our nostalgia. It actually un uh, awakens, it unlocks in our heart this hunger for something more. And we're going to see that where that, that hunger can be satisfied in this passage. So as we walk through, one of the sentences I just want you to think about as we see these, these couples, the two parents, the two prophets, the two 
image is, is that no matter what season of life you're in, no matter what situation you find yourself, or no matter what suffering comes your way, no matter the season, the situation, the suffering, there is a godly response. There is something good that can come out of that. There's a godly response no matter what season, situation, or suffering. So as we look, let's kind of get a, a, a sense of what's going on here. Uh, we've been looking, chapter 1, chapter 2 of Luke. These are the original Christmas carols, the original songs of Christmas, the infancy narratives as they set the stage for who Jesus is, what is he going to be, what type of expectations is he going to fulfill. And what's interesting about the way Luke sets his story up is he puts you in the context of they begin at the temple and they end at the temple in this, in chapters one and two. So the narrative or the, the, the nativity story begins and ends at the temple. He's actually patterning that after the way the Bible ends and the history ends, the story of the world. Genesis one, two, three, it begins in essence in the temple. Genesis one, creation. Genesis two, the first marriage. Genesis three, Satan enters and there's a fall. And then the last three chapters of, of Revelation, chapters 20, 21 and 22, they're working those things backwards. So 20 is the fall of Satan and his destruction. 21 is the, um, the final marriage between the lamb and his bride. And then 22 is the restoration of all things in the new creation as the new temple. So he's taking you into that place that this is a location where the renewal and restoration of all things. So let's look at the different characters. And what I want to do pretty quickly is just look at each character and think, all right, what lessons this holiday season can we learn about how they respond to the situation they find themselves in? So first, let's look at the two young parents, Mary and Joseph. And let's pick their story up from verse 21 to 24 and then verse 39. And at the end of the eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." then skip over to 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Did you notice how often Luke, had, that everything they did was in accordance to the law of the Lord? So here you have two young parents and what they do this season, this situation in their life, they joyfully place themselves under the law of the Lord. They, they fulfill his will by obeying his commands. And you notice Mary doesn't say, she doesn't say, look, that, that stuff may be good for all you ordinary mamas, but I ain't no ordinary mama. Remember, I'm the highly favored one in whom the Lord is well pleased. So I don't have to walk by these statutes. I don't have to walk by these guidelines. I'm someone special. Me and my husband, we have visits from angels in the evening. I don't know who you talk to at night. But no, she submits herself to these laws. Jesus' circumcision, verse 21, on the eighth day after his bo he's born, they give him the name that the angels told to give him. And then her purification, in verse 22, which would have been 40 days after her, her, uh, his birth, to purify him, dedicate him to the Lord as the firstborn, and to purify her. And they come and offer the sacrifice of purification. One thing to know, they offer the, kind of the sacrifice that they offer is two turtle doves, so it's the lowest uh, so it gives a window into their socioeconomic status. But here's their dedication of Jesus. 
I think there's a couple lessons, but I think the one most important for us is how they joyfully, in this season, come under the law. They're going to make sure, it's fascinating, they're going to make sure that their son is there. He's going to be at the temple. He's going to be around God's people. He's going to be, no matter how confused they are, he's going to be there. No matter how poor they are, they're going to be there. No matter how busy they are, they're going to be there. And I think one of the things they know is that their greatest need has to do with sacrifice. Already at the beginning, purification. This is their greatest need. They know themselves to be sinners and have to uh, walk the path that God gives to find redemption, healing, cleanliness. So uh, in this season, you might be like these two parents who enter into a season, and I think for them, the, the godly response is just be faithful. Just keep on keeping on. Obey his word. Do what he commands. Left foot, right foot, just keep walking steady. And that might be a season you're in. This, this, this season coming up in this next year might not be a season of extraordinary newness and adventure. It might be a season of just steady. Keep going. Steady. So two young parents are faithful to the word. And then you have two elderly prophets who have been patiently waiting for the Lord. And I love the way Luke pairs things. He loves pairs. You have John and Jesus, Mary, Elizabeth. Here you have Simeon and Anna. So let's pick up their story, starting in verse 25 with Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess named Anna. She was the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here you see these two characters, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon, it's marked out that he was righteous and he was devout, giving you a hint on the two tables of the law. Uh, righteous, right relationships to one another. Devout, devoted, right relationships to the Lord. That's the summation of all the Old Testament, all the law, all that God requires of us. Right relationships with him, right relationships with one another. But notice how often or how it's marked that he is waiting. He is waiting the Lord had revealed to him he would not see death until he saw the Christ. So his life was marked by waiting. And then three times it was the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And notice it's interesting. There's subtle little hints because Luke said he's waiting on the consolation. 
He's waiting on the, um, it's actually the same word that John, uh, Jesus in John 14 through 17 will tell you that it's better that he goes away because the parakaleo, the spirit, the helper, the comforter is going to come. So the comfort you're waiting on is actually a person. It's the Holy Spirit. and says he's waiting on the, the parakalesis, the, the help, the comfort, the one that's going to come by the Holy Spirit. So he's got a foretaste, but he's waiting on the fullness. And then you have Anna, who is presented as someone uh, from a regal, dignified family. She was married very young, was widowed very young, and then for an entire life, she was faithfully dedicated uh, to worship in the temple day and night. So here's someone who, both of them in a sense had lived long. And in that long life, they had suffered much. I mean, just think about Anna's life as she had experienced this deep disappointment in her life, but still utterly committed to the worship and the word and the people of the Lord. You know, she's the kind of, the type of people that God all throughout history has built his kingdom on. You know, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great pastors in Britain in the 19th century, um, would always say, people would ask, what's the success of your thriving ministry? He had one of the largest churches in the world at the time, and his sermons would go out all across the Atlantic. They would tell it, they would, uh, what's the, where they tap it, telegraph it across the Atlantic, and it go, they would print them every Monday in the New York Times. And uh, went all the way across the world. And people would ask, what is the secret of your success? And he says, it's my warrior widows. We have a group of widows who have dedicated themselves to praying for this ministry every single day. And in the tabernacle they built, you know, this is before amplification, so you had to like do strategic things so people could hear. And so like the pulpit would be built way up and they'd have sounding boards. And under the pulpit, they built this room where those warrior widows would gather every time there was a service and they would be praying all throughout it. And this is the kind of woman that Anna is. But both of them, what marked their long life was waiting. Their whole life they waited, longing. This sense that my present circumstances are not permanent. Something, someone is going to come to reverse this. There's going to be a king who is going to come. The Savior will come. A new Moses will come to deliver us. The new David will come to reign over us. There, God will somehow come so that he can be our God and we will be his people. Their whole life was marked by waiting. But what you see is this joyful exuberance because even though they waited, even though they experienced difficulty and deep disappointment, disappointment for Anna at a young age. And what can happen to you when you experience such disappointment at a young age? You can get cynical, you can get jaded, you can get bitter, but none of that happened to them. They held on to hope and they held on to their joy. They had lived long with deep disappointments, but they were still hopeful and they were waiting, watching. And then I love both of their responses. Notice Simeon's response in verse 27. He starts to sing, and then he blesses others. This is the final song in the original Christmas carols. And it begins, Now you're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He begins to sing. And what I love is he's the lesson we can learn from Simeon is that what he tells us is, um, now, because I have seen by faith the Savior, I can go and pe I can die. It's all good. 
everything else that happens in my life after this point is all gravy. It's all gift. But now that I've seen the Savior, I can depart in peace. Notice he doesn't have a bucket list of things in his uh, retirement that he needs to see. Like, all right, I'll be happy if I see the Savior. That's fine. But I also kind of want to see the pyramids. And I would like to see the Grand Tetons, even though he didn't know those existed. Or I'd like to see this thing. I'd like to see that. It's I've seen the Savior, and now everything else is gift. And do you realize what type of stability and security and emotional power that is? See, he knew the messianic math. Do you know messianic math? The math is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The math is everything minus Jesus equals nothing. And Simeon knew if I can see Jesus, I have everything. And one of the reasons our Christmas season can fuel our discontent is because we really believe that if we just see or touch or taste or have certain things that they'll ultimately satisfy us. And the, you know, uh, it, they never will. What, what it does, the holiday seasons can churn up in us longings that can only be satisfied in one place. And what Simeon teaches us is that uh, with the sight of this Savior... All he ever has or all he ever needs is here, and it can stabilize him. And just think about the sight of the Christ as a baby had such a powerful effect on him. How much more for us who've seen the whole story? We've seen the whole person. We know how salvation ends. And then notice what Anna does. She's one of my favorite characters in this situation. It's kind of like, you know, the little, the kids thing. We have our certain mental images that we create. And I kind of view Anna as somebody kind of like Cynthia, because you notice she comes in and she's, uh, she comes into the temple and uh, her response, Simeon starts to sing. And then her response is she starts talking to everyone. And she's talking joyfully, and she just can't stop talking. And she comes in, and she starts to tell everyone she didn't depart night and day, dedicated to fasting and prayer, and everyone she she sees, she's going to tell about this goodness. It's such a beautiful picture of a heart that's been, um, had the opportunity to become cynical and jaded, but instead had become joyful. And, you know, the thing about Anna here is she would only have encountered Jesus if she came to the temple. Could you imagine what she would have felt like if she would have not gone that morning? Said, oh, these knees are too old, too tired, too cold. She wouldn't have seen him if she wouldn't have gone. And one of the lessons is that you can only encounter him if you go to where he is. And you have to come. And she would have stayed home that day. She would have missed one of the greatest blessings of her life. So Simeon, Anna, and then the second thing, or the third thing I want you to see is these two pictures. Because these two pictures come together that make a strange, it's kind of strange. Why are they here? What do they tell us about Christmas? How do they come together to make this beautiful thing that we celebrate? And what Simeon does is he begins in verse 35, 34, 35, 36. He begins to tell and explain to Mary what this child is going to do. This child actually is going to be the dividing line between everyone on earth. He's going to divide the earth. And now the only thing that matters is how people respond to him. Because he's going to reveal what's in their hearts. Do you see that in verse 35? That's part of what he does. So the thoughts from many hearts are going to be opened up and revealed. And there's two images. It's the image of the sword and the stone. 
a sword and the stone. You can get the hints of the sword in verse 34, where he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And what that's a veiled reference to, that, that text that so many of the New Testament writers use, that he's going to be the chief cornerstone, and, but that's the stone the builders reject. So the image is that the stone, and there's two options. You can either uh, try and go over the stone and you're going to fall, or you can be wise and you can build your life on the stone, and you can be strong and stable when the wind, winds come. So this idea of the stone on Christ, the solid rock, you can stand. But then there's this other image that he gives to her in verse 35. And just think about Mary. I remember she's 13, 14, 15 years old, has just, is, is, is wrapped up in this whirlwind of events that are just beyond belief. And then one of the things he tells her in verse 35, and all these things are going to happen. And this child's come. It's light, glory, uh, revelation to the Gentiles, glory to Israel, glory to God in the highest. He's already heard from the shepherds. But then this note in 35 and a sword will pierce through your own soul. I mean, why does he tell her that? You know, what's he trying to say? What's the point? You know, how is that helpful to a young, terrified mother? Just tell her what's going to happen. He's going to bring peace, but the peace doesn't come without a piercing. And you're going to experience the piercing. And you think, all right, how... Where does the piercing come from? And this is part of the strange mixture that is Christmas. Have you ever thought about how confrontational Christmas really is? It's confrontational. Even the songs we sing, we sing, joy to the world, let the earth receive her, what? King. We sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We're celebrating the coming of the king. And that's hard for people in any era. Sometimes we can look like there's kind of skeptical scholars will look at the story of Herod when Jesus was born and say, oh, that can never happen because you can never have a tyrant do that kind of thing. He must have been, you know, just a madman. Maybe. Or maybe he was one of the few people that actually understood what's going on. Because if this new king comes, guess who that means is not king? Herod's not. If he is, you're not. And no one likes to be deposed. No one likes to be dethroned. And that's hard for Americans because part of just who we are, or we are people, you know, government for the people, by the people, of the people. We don't have a king. We bow our knee to no one. And the confrontational word of Christmas is that the king is coming. And one of the things we learn to say in the playground when we're in kindergarten is you're not the boss of me. And we say it our entire life. And what Christmas is a declaration that everyone sings every time they're in the elevator in Macy's and just lipping these words is that the earth's king has come. And you have to bow down. That can be very hard. See, what we say is, all right, well, you can be the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ of that, but you're not the Christ of this. So we say things like, you're not the Christ of my money, or you're not the Christ of my body, or you're not the Christ of my time, or you're not the Christ of my priorities. I mean, think about how would conversations about in our world be different if we recognize that actually Christ is king of these different things. See, actually the default tendency of the human heart is to look at these different things like our body, our sexuality, our finances, our time, and say, mine. I was listening to a preacher I like to listen to, and he's in a similar stage of the, that we're in. He has a young two-year-old. He was telling the story. They went to the, um, the Museum of Natural History 
in New York, and it was their two-year-old. It's kind of funny because if you ever like seen, they have this giant like whale, and his little two-year-old girl was pointing at it and was going, "Mine, mine," and uh, she wanted her daddy to give her the whale, and uh, she threw a temper tantrum there in the Museum of Natural History because she couldn't get the whale. And you know, of course, you know, kids who throw temp- temper tantrums are always funnier when it's somebody else's kid. And she wanted the whale. And as he was talking about it, he said, you know, the, the audacity of this two-foot-tall person who can't even string together a coherent sentence is demanding that this thing is mine. It's mine. He said, actually, that's the unfiltered declaration of every human heart. See, everyone, we, we still make the same declarations. We just get better at masking them as we get older. And with the confrontational nature of Christmas is the sword is coming because it declares to you, actually, these things aren't mine. There is a true king. There's a true king. So that's one of the things, the reason why he tells her. But I think, you know, why does this, does this help her? I think one of the things it can do is help prepare her for what she'll experience to teach her the reality of what's coming. But it's just worth thinking about what would that have been like for Mary? You know, what would it have been like to actually experience the sword as the sword pierced her own soul? And we know she was there. She watched because 33 years later, Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem. And this time, he's not going to be celebrated and ushered in with welcome arms. He's going to be, uh, he's, he's be taken and stripped and beaten. And she sees it all. She watches and all of you mothers know, all of you know, you know, as, as a mother, you're never going to be happier than your saddest child. And she's going to watch now as her firstborn son is beaten and mocked and humiliated. And when the spear was thrust in his side, you know, the, she, she felt that every, as much as he did. So what would that have been like for her as she watched and what the beauty that she had to learn and why the prophet was preparing her to experience is that actually the real, the ultimate sword was actually not falling on her. It was falling on him. See, the ultimate sword, the only final sword that can ever destroy you was falling on him, not her. Because he's redoing what happened in Genesis 3. Go back there when Adam and Eve are put out of the garden. The way now is blocked to God and you can't get back. And what's stationed there to stop you from coming into God's presence? It's one of his angels with the flaming sword turning in every direction. Now every direction is now blocked and the way is shut. And so the only way to get the way back open into God's presence is he had to come and he couldn't just say sword be gone and have it melt like hot wax. He had to endure it. And so the ultimate sword of God's wrath pierced him. So now every other sword uh, won't destroy us. And so for Mary, even though that terrible sword pierced her on that Friday, can you imagine the joy on the Sunday when she saw him? And now she would see him in such a way where she would never lose him because he's ruling, reigning, resurrected. Imagine the joy that she experienced there. I don't know, somehow I got on my Twitter feed this week was this video, and I don't know any of this background story, but I was just the story of this 88-year-old mother who saw her daughter the first time that she thought had, had died. And the, do you imagine the exuberance and the joy? Somebody sent it and said, I defy you to watch this and not cry. Because this is this exaltation, and that's exactly what Mary's experienced. So the ultimate sword went through him, so it wouldn't have to 
go through her and what she discovered and learned is that there's a joy you can find here that will never leave you or never forsake you. So no matter what season of life you're in or what situation you face or what suffering you might encounter this year, there's a godly response. There's a way it can be redeemed. There's a way this most unlikely situation can turn into something beautiful in your life. But one of the things that's got to that's gotta die is you have to experience what Simeon experienced and sing the song of celebration that produces contentment. One of the things that fuels our difficulty at Christmas is we're just not content with the things we have. So children, don't believe that uh, if for some reason you don't get the thing you wanted that you're somehow missing out in life. You, know, you might not get the living baby who really will cry and actually wet its diaper. But just because you don't get that doesn't mean you're not missing out on anything in life. Nobody wants that anyway. Uh, you can come over to our house. It's not that great. You can see a real baby who wets its diaper. That's no fun. Don't think if I don't receive this thing that somehow I, I'm, I'm missing. L listen, learn the messianic math that with Jesus and nothing else, you have everything. I love the prayer of one of Charles Spurgeon's people in his church. He was one of his faithful deacons, and he was one of the poorest people on the south end of London. And Spurgeon would go and visit him, and he'd try his best to kind of bring out all his best dishes for the great pastor who was coming. And all he has these little, yeah, he had nothing. But every time he said his prayer, he'd always say, thank you, Lord, because all this and Jesus too. All this and Jesus too. Charles Swindoll had this poem I heard on the radio. I don't know where he got it, but it summarizes this. It says, it was spring, but it was summer that I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter that I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was really spring that I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood that I wanted. I wanted the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was the 30s that I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was the 20s I really wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was the middle-aged I really wanted, the presence of mind and not all the limitations. And my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Don't let the desire to receive what you'll never have steal from you the joy this holiday season. Don't let this be the song of your life. Learn the song of Simeon that says, with the sight of this child, you have all you could ever want. So as we transition now, we're going to spend some time praying, praying for us, praying for the world, and just as we think about what to pray for, um, like to pray for, pray for us. Uh, maybe you're in the situation like Mary and Joseph, and what's going to come up to you this year is maybe nothing new. It's just going to be a normal year, and God's calling for you is just, just to be faithful. Keep on keeping on. Obey His Word. Joyfully come under His Word and just do the routine rhythm of what life is all about. Or maybe this year it might be a year like Simeon experienced, Maybe what's coming up, Simeon actually uh, received and experienced the great hope of his life in that year, in that moment. And maybe something you've been hoping for, working for, praying for, maybe you'll actually experience it this year. 
And then the challenge, are you in the midst of that blessing, will you praise him or will you forget him? Will you bless God and bless others when you experience that blessing? Or maybe it might be coming up a year like was foretold for Mary. Could be the year of the sword when deep personal, relational, emotional wounds happen or get exposed. No matter what season of life you're going to enter, or what situations you'll encounter this year, there's a godly response so you can turn that into something holy, something good, something beautiful. So let's pray.